This is the lesson on strategic intelligence analysis. Like the last lesson, we hope this lesson helps you with your final IWS memo, especially on the section entitled Guiding Vision. That's the first section normally um, in this type of memorandum. The main purpose of this lesson is to underline the analytic tradecraft of intelligence. In this way, we can better understand the constraints and challenges intelligence analysts and briefers face. This is not to give them, that is the intelligence analysts and briefers, a get-out-of-free-jail card. Instead, it is to help us get the most out of our briefings and get the most out of our requests for further information. One important thing to remember from last week is the importance of estimative probability. There is no certainty. I have had several intelligence customers ask me for certainty. I have had several that have wanted algorithms that can predict future events with near certainty. This is completely laughable. Until we hack the space-time continuum, this will never occur. What is important is to ask about <clears throat> methodologies. Ask about dissents. Use plain language when you're asking questions. Don't be afraid to, to use very plain, direct language. And if you find yourself at a wall, or if you find yourself against a wall, if you will, in your communications with intelligence officers, you can always call in help uh, for you to communicate your needs. Some of the greatest intelligence analysts are not necessarily great verbal communicators. So bringing in a friendly, a friendly third party is always an option. And if you really get to loggerheads, please call or email me or any of the other faculty at CIC. In my case, anyways, my students are students for life, and I am here to support you the rest of your careers, not just while you're at CIC. Another thing to keep in mind is policymaker and lawmakers want for raw intelligence, something that came up during discussion last week. Raw intelligence is not intelligence. It is only a report that is then used to conduct intelligence that will regard many sources in a greater context of expertise. When I've had demands for raw intelligence, I will bring in a person from the field. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just speaking about my experience, being descriptive, not prescriptive. I'll bring in a person from the field who may rub the customer the wrong way. As a collector, either they'll be salty or geeky in the best of ways, in ways that make them the best at their job. Or I'll bring in someone that will be the first to admit the incredible limitations and untrustworthiness of a single report from a single source. I would recommend bringing in someone with at least 25 years of experience, not someone new that may be overconfident or arrogant. So I've also been someone, I have about 20, only 23 and a half years of experience in information and influence warfare, at the strategic level, but I have been brought in as an observer who has provided reports, in addition to being that actual uh, final analytic briefer. And in those cases, I can come in and say with certainty, the world is uncertain. Hey, we have this one report, but here are the levels of certainty we have. Here's the faith and the trustworthiness we have in this particular uh, single report. Okay, a word about the readings. The Western reading is about arguments, analysis, and evidence. This reading is not meant to insult our intelligence. You have already shown that you are excellent, what I like to call bravura, 
analysts and writers. If not, you would not still be here at CIC. Okay, this reading is to remind us of some of the basics that were taught by Dr. Sutherland in August, and to remind us to return to the basics throughout our careers. These three chapters I have reread usually about four to five times a year since this fourth edition was published. Um, it is so easy to get into bad habits, I have found, or to allow your intelligence analysts and briefers some slack, too much slack. I've done this many times, uh, and I find myself reminding myself the basics and that that is a huge help, at least to me, in my career, to go back to the basics again and again. You certainly don't have to read this thoroughly, as there is nothing here that you're seeing for the first time. But instead, in the interest of deep reflection and deep learning that we're trying to attain in IWS, I want to reflect back on our basics now that we're only a couple of months from graduation. And you may wish to do this throughout your career. And so I hope you print this out or save this file um, going forward after your NDU <clears throat> experience. I also think it will be helpful when you're editing your IWS memo and when you're editing your ISRP to return to these basics, the language, the argumentation, especially with your counter arguments and in your conclusion, it may be helpful. So what about the Marine Corps reading? Why are we reading something that seems to be operational when we are now at the strategic and national level? Well, there's two reasons. The first is that this document is read and reread by even the most senior intelligence officers at the national level. Go to any GS-15 or SES-1 senior intelligence analyst or senior intelligence officer office, and you'll find this text hidden in a drawer, behind a bookshelf, or if you're me, on a mantle with overhead lighting, because I love the Marine Corps. It is one of the best summaries that comprise the playbook that national intelligence officers today still go by. This may help your communications, your questions, and understanding of intelligence analyses that you receive. Also, this text is the most widely read internationally. The CCP, the Kremlin, Tehran, and yes, even ISIS reads this document. This is in part because the doctrine is written in what is called simple English. A plain English that is easy to understand and easy to translate with a limited vocabulary. This is some of the best writing that I've ever seen. It continues to be. Uh, the writing is clear. It's concise. It's deceptively simple because there's many complex ideas behind what is communicated. This is the text that our adversaries and competitors read to try to understand U.S. intelligence tradecraft. And it is vital in intelligence and strategy planning to have an understanding of what our adversaries assume about our processes. One of the questions from the discussion in the last lesson was on how we ourselves can better be consumers or be better consumers of intelligence and that we must sometimes accept to hear things we may not want to hear, especially if intelligence drives us to necessarily dramatically change how we operate. And change is no fun. So I want to briefly revisit a changing enemy and landscape that led to a young cavalry officer, U.S. Army cavalry officer, to become arguably one of the most effective guerrilla fighters in American history. Someone who had not only, did not only have to disavow all his ideas of warfare, but on his own had to learn Mao, 
and then, or Mao's texts, and then conduct guerrilla warfare many times more extreme than Mao did. I'm talking about strategy and tactics. I'm not, of course, talking about ideology. IWS lessons were designed to reinforce each other, and we will often go back to old texts and lessons, especially in the last five lessons of IWS. It's part of our deep reflection and deep learning that we want for this course. So, from an intelligence perspective of the terrain, of the situation, of the enemy, and understanding the vulnerability of conventional fighting, let's very quickly return to the Ramsey case study. U.S. and Filipino guerrillas between 1942 and 1945 followed communist guerrilla tactics that the Philippine hooks had taken from Mao Zedong. These were the communist uh, guerrillas that were also against Japan, but they were also against the U.S., and they were also against the Philippine government in the Philippines during that time. These communist guerrillas uh, were enemies of the Japanese. Uh, the Philippine government and the U.S. led anti-Japanese rebels um, and they had decades of experience and success, or mild tactical successes, as far as their survival and their survival of the movement. U.S. Army officers and non-commissioned officers of the Army and the Marines read and abide, and this, I'm talking now about the entire Pacific, um, the entire Pacific campaign. Um, commissioned officers, uh, sorry, non-commissioned officers of the Army and Marines read and abided by certain non-political tenets and organizational suggestions of Mao Zedong's book on guerrilla warfare. This is something difficult for commanders to stomach, to follow the tradecraft of a perhaps adversary. Mao Zedong was an adversary at the time, but certainly there were suspicions, a possible adversary for the future. As one U.S. officer in the resistance opined, and I'm quoting here from the Ramsey book, well, Mao Zedong could be a Japanese person, and I am paraphrasing, for all I care, so long as we can use what he says. The American and Filipino guerrillas took Mao's recommended structures and approaches and took it further, allowing regional guerrilla units to be far more autonomous than Mao would have ever have recommended. And I quote here again from the Ramsey reading, No longer would we follow the Maoist model of cadres. Instead, the resistance would be reorganized, did away with the inequities and vagaries of the cadre system, allowed for decentralized control, and made for a more efficient response to the increasingly grave military and counterintelligence situation we faced. So again, you are restructuring the way you do things, you're restructuring your forces because of the terrain and because of the enemy. You are giving credence to the diagnosis of the challenges and the threats you face, no matter how uncomfortable it might make someone feel, especially someone that came from the U.S. Military Academy, uh, that grew up in traditional conventional uh, fighting training, and was a cavalry officer. The person that would eventually become the commander of all guerrilla units on the largest Philippine island, uh, that is uh, Luzon, with Manila, uh, the capital on Luzon, stated about insurgent warfare, and so this is another quote from Ramsey. What Comrade Mao is saying is that we have to turn our weaknesses into strengths. We have to stay on the defensive but assume the initiative, take advantage of the terrain and the fact that the Japanese are fighting in a foreign country among a hostile population. We have to stay flexible but organized and avoid pitched battles. Most of all, we have to build our credibility and get the people on our side. We fight only when we have the advantage, 
but we don't take on the enemy directly. To which his colleague replied, we attack only, and I'm quoting here from the Ramsey reading, we attack only when we know we can win. Otherwise, we stay low and concentrate on organizing, gathering, intelligent, gathering intelligence, and sabotage. So imagine how discomforting this is for somebody that all they knew is flanking and frontal attacks on horses. Okay, so to go back a little bit to last week's podcast, we finished off last week's podcast talking about future adversary courses of action, especially with regards to over-the-horizon predictive analytic intelligence. I want to briefly talk about the intelligence cycle, something that Captain Zirkel did extraordinarily well. But what I would like to do is kind of take a step back and talk about it in a little more of a, using more of a plain language, if you will, on how the intelligence cycle works or how you can view it from a bird's eye view. Delivered finished intelligence products will spur questions and needs that further drive collections plans that provide raw data for analysts. This raw data is turned into accessible, unvetted, unanalyzed information. For example, digital ones and zeros from a satellite are provided to programmers, designers, cartographers, and geographers to build a map with information about an enemy overlay. Analysts then use this information, a map of enemy positions, for example, along with past intelligence assessment, other information, such as reports from human sources, signals, intercepts, and international media, to develop new analyses. Publishers, those responsible nodes that ensure quality and press send or physically deliver products, and briefers ensure the products reach the right people in the right format, in the right way, at the right time. That's a very difficult thing to do. And I want you to think through that. The publishers and the briefers have to ensure the product reach the right people in the right format, in the right way, at the right time. Strategic intelligence consumers, that's all of us, whether we're intelligence in intelligence or not, if you are in intelligence, you're still going to be consuming finished intelligence as well in your job. Strategic intelligence consumers may immediately request for more information on an intelligence report at any time or they may use the finished product to make decisions that then require further intelligence and regular updates. The intelligence cycle never ends. Direct assets, collect data, process data into information, analyze information to produce intelligence products, disseminate the product to the interested parties, receive feedback from strategic leaders and intelligence managers, then direct assets according Accordingly, again, then collect data, again, the cycle repeats forever. So last week we did talk about the different kinds of ints. If you have more questions, please bring those questions. I know we're focused on analysis, but conducting good analysis means also understanding collections. Um, so we talked uh, last week about humans. Uh, we did not talk about surveillance and reconnaissance. Happy to talk about that if you have questions. We talked about signals intelligence, or SIGINT. We talked about communications intelligence, or COMMENT. We talked about imagery intelligence, or IMINT. We talked about geospatial intelligence, or GEOINT. 
Uh, we did not talk about document ex exploitation or docx, something that we're happy to talk about. Um, if you have questions, uh, if that is of interest to you. And we did talk about open source intelligence or OSINT. And we did not talk as much, although Dr. I mean, uh, Professor <clears throat> and Captain Zirkel, both Professor and Captain Zirkel, um, talked about all source uh, intelligence, which is very important. It's also important to understand the difference between the ideas of clandestine, where operations seek to conceal actions, and covert, that's where operations, covert operations emphasize concealment of the identity of who is conducting the action so that the protagonist remains unknown or the protagonist is able to plausibly deny um, that it was indeed her and some of the legalities around that. If you have questions about clandestine versus covert, please bring those to um, the uh, plenary or to your seminars. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about red teams. Um, and then after this, I'm going to talk about just a few other analytic ideas, and then we're going to be done. Um, I think this, plus the readings, plus everything we had last week, um, is more than enough uh, to generate really uh, rich debate this upcoming lesson. Red teams. A red team comprises a group, internal or external to an organization, uh, or it can be combined, internal and external to an organization. Uh, they comprise a group that uncovers ways for an agency or office or service or unit to improve its strategies and functioning. Now, a red cell offer, often refers to those actors who play an adversary during war games and planning. They act as dynamic spoilers and thoughtful enemies to add levels of realism and ultimately inspire better strategies of friendly forces. A red cell may or may not play a role on a red team. And if you have questions between red cells and red teams, please bring those questions to plenary and we can discuss. Some of this is discussed in your CIC information primer, and certainly uh, it's in the doctrine. Um, it's in doctrine that you have access to for your CIC course and for a number of other courses. In the intelligence rep, uh, realm, red teams often war game as if they are the enemy. Um, this is not always the case but this can be the case in some intelligence offices. Um, as if they are the enemy to better analyze friendly vulnerabilities and adversarial strengths, dispositions, and compositions during exercises and plans. Red teaming should also be conducted in unclassified environments using the creative insights of screenwriters, directors, authors, artists, scholars, and other non-experts. This is something we did at Homeland Security and Special Operations Command. We'd bring in screenwriters, we'd bring in novel authors, fiction authors, we'd bring in even musicians. We had someone from the Steely, uh, Steely Dan, I guess Steely Dan, that band, uh, we brought them in, we brought in Dan Aykroyd, we brought in all sorts of people to bring in interesting and new ideas that we otherwise would not have thought of. Um, outside imagination will test the boundaries of what one might initially think is likely or possible. Uh, years before 9-11, for example, there were three fictional authors who wrote about terrorists using commercial airliners as weapons against Washington, D.C. It's a shame that uh, they were not brought into the red teams, though to be fair, their ideas probably would have found deaf ears as the, um, the pre-9-11 preposterous nature of such a notion. And there's a number of reasons for the assumption that mass... Uh, attacks that caused mass casualties were unlikely to occur, even though many people had thought of throwing um, jetliners 
into the Capitol, the White House, and other buildings in Washington, D.C. Um, in very popular fiction. Okay, about effective red teams. Uh, this is according to Donald Kagan and Mark Metesk. One, break the rules. Two, question everything. Three, offer contrarian perspectives. Four, identify an otherwise overlooked or underappreciated decision trap. Five, employ a multidisciplinary range of skills, talents, and methods. Six, adopt the cultural perspective of the adversary or competitor, something that's very difficult to do. And seven, shed the cultural biases of the decision makers. From, the from, the, from personal observations of directing, coordinating, and participating, so this is the world according to Howard, so please take this with a big grain of salt. In both red teams and red cells, in the intelligence community, I've witnessed two particular actions that often may strengthen intelligence services. The first is that one person be designated as the contrarian. Whatever final analyses, judgments, and recommendations come from red teaming or from a red cell on a red team, this one person must disagree and at least on paper must develop a strategic plan skeleton accordingly. For example, if a red team wargames out a scenario and determines that country X will unlikely invade country Y, this odd man out must leave at the conclusion of the exercise and prepare an intelligence strategy under the assumption that country X will or is about to invade country Y. This is a method to hedge one's bets without trying to do all things in all places. Any government has limited time, money, and manpower, so it is impossible to prepare for all scenarios. Thus, red teaming is one way to wargame out likely courses of action that will impel planning down a certain path, to appropriate resources down this one path. The odd man out will leave the exercise under the assumption that the path leads in the opposite direction. In this way, when there is a black swan event, or if the red team's predictions are off, and they often are, then a leader can use the contrarian's plan as a counterpoint to the mainstream conclusions of the red team. It may often then be easier to steer a middle course when events unfold, because very often it's not going to be black or white, it's going to be somewhere in the gray. And of course, if the red team is completely wrong, then, and this is very rare, then the contrarian's plan may become a starting uh, blueprint for action. Now, this may sound like an odd or unnecessary laborious task, especially for the designated contrarian, who I've played uh, several times, but intelligence services notoriously are unable to predict world-changing events. From the fall of the Soviet Union to Egypt's attack against Israel, Thus designated only one person as the contrarian is a relatively small investment with potentially wide-reaching benefit. The second suggestion I have, and this is from, again, my Howard's personal experience, so take this with a grain of salt, please. The second is that one person be brought on the team without any warning, without any preparation, and without any relative specialization. This person is an equal chair to the others on the team, it may be an information technology specialist, an IT person, a receptionist, or someone from HR, for example. 
In some cases, this person will apply the common sense test to any assumption, prediction, or conclusion. Or in some cases, think of something no imaginative storyteller, subject matter expert, area expert, or methodological expert can yet imagine. Whoever coordinates and directs the team, the red team, must be on hand to ensure this unprepared, non-expert has equal time and equal input to all others, and that no professional retaliation or bad career mark will be made. The only expectation is that this outside, unprepared person put forth effort and speak up when appropriate. If he or she does not, in the end, help the red team, there should also be no negative consequence. This, in turn, may inspire the person to speak out as she or he feels appropriate. So those are some suggestions about red teaming. A uh, couple quick words about information and intelligence sharing. For information and intelligence sharing, so this is really important for intelligence officers, but frankly, this is important for all strategic leaders, uh, especially for your staff or if you are on staff, for example, of a combatant command. Continually ask, with whom should I share this information or intelligence? The culture should be need to show as opposed to need to know. Because intelligence focuses on enemies, competitors, threats, challenges, and vulnerabilities. And because intelligence never prescribes friendly courses of action, the same intelligence analysis may be equally important to a military and local law enforcement alike if analyses affect these entities. So in other words, we're all facing a common enemy. We have to understand who else is this going to affect, and then we should share that intelligence as appropriate and as the law and norms allow. Of course, you may need to reframe an analysis for the needs of a different audience. And this is important because this is there's very few formal positions that offer uh, intelligence sharing to the degree that I'm gonna describe. Learn the laws, techniques, and administrative steps to declassify and reclassify reports or release parts of reports to ensure proper information sharing with partners with different security clearance levels. Know the legal, administrative, and technology officers across agencies that can help reclassify and release reports or parts of reports legally, properly, and efficiently. This is very difficult. There are many steps involved. There are many personalities and people. Uh, there are many different uh, levels from you know, GS-12 to SES-3 that may be involved in a process like this. It really is, I mean, once you know the laws and once you know the technical sort of know-how of how this is done, the techniques, if you will, it then becomes an art. Oftentimes it becomes an art of gaining trust and interpersonal skills and having a certain amount of passion to make sure that it happens quickly and on time. And if you are an intelligence officer or you work with intelligence officers, it is really the onus is on them to uh, get the information to the right people at the right time in the right place. Actively build meaningful professional relationships across varying communities, commercial, counterterrorism, multinational, tourism, nonprofit, and academic communities, for example, to widen horizons, 
to hear creative ideas and share information as appropriate. I'm not talking about sharing intelligence here. I'm talking about receiving information in this case. And I'm talking about also providing, you know, tit for tat, uh, but in the value of trust and transparency and trust, uh, excuse me, trust, transparency, and truth is providing meaningful, at least information or research that's on the extremely shareable uh, level and to develop these types of communities. Trust is built over time. Trust cannot be surged during crises. And too often during a crisis, suddenly you want to bring in lots of experts from the outside. That's never any good. The best case is, or the, what you try to do is you try to develop those relationships before a crisis happens. So you should have in your Rolodex, for example, um, folks that have a lot of knowledge on China or Russia or Iran uh, or maybe Brazil and India or wherever so that when there is a crisis and you need to understand a certain area, you need to understand a certain challenge, you need to understand a certain threat that you can use your communities of interest, your networks for your benefit. And a lot of times this is, again, it's, it's trading information over time, over years and generating that trust. Uh, doing so, of course, uh, openly and legally um, and with stuff that is very shareable. Um, my final thing about information and intelligence sharing is avoid relying on established, formal, interagency working groups. Okay, They're very important. Uh, if you are called to one or you volunteer to be on one, that's wonderful. But don't let that be the stopping point for your greater networks within national security, and especially within intelligence communities. You need to proactively create and grow your own networks. And that's something we like to do at CIC. We've been limited because, of course, we don't have outside speakers physically coming. There's a lot of reasons why uh, there's limits on what people can do and collaborate and MS teams. Um, but one thing that, you, that we are able to do is once you graduate NDU is to reach back to CIC, reach back to faculty, uh, reach back to CIC leadership, and we can put you in touch uh, with certain folks that you may want to speak with or communicate with. Okay, a final thought on intelligence writ large, on especially the national level. Intelligence really, at the end of the day, when we are certainly at lead strategy uh, it leads operational art, it leads operations, it leads tactics, but it's also about mitigating risk. We have to understand its limitations, and this comes back to these ideas of estimated probability. From the standpoint of defense, intelligence, counterintelligence, operational security, and deception can only mitigate risk. There is no perfect defense. Complete inoculation from threats is impossible. Even if you institute, for example, complete surveillance of a population, reading all electronic and physical messages, listening in on all conversation, and gathering all metadata on people by every instrument of state and civil power, there may still be viable attempted attacks and compromise. And so we have to accept that, and we have to be okay with that, and we have to look forward in a world that is obviously uncertain, as the world has always been, because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, uh, and realize that we, all we can do is manage risk. There is no such thing as a perfect defense. 
Thus, it is vital for an intelligence officer to manage leadership expectations, and it's important for us to manage our own expectations. Intelligence informs leaders to mitigate risk. One does not erase risk. Thank you.